Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our devices to Exodus chapter 33. The topic, God tells Moses, no man can see his full glory and live, but he says he can pass by Moses and show him his back. Title of our message, I'll see back. That's all I got this morning. Father, thank you for our message this morning, the uh, message of your word from Exodus 33. Lord, it's always such an amazing thing to see how these ancient texts have so contemporary an application. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, who's here in this place and in our hearts, we would see that today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Who would be your pick for the greatest romance in history, real or fictional. Just think about that for a minute. I did a Google search for the greatest romance in history. See if you're on this list. Romeo and Juliet, Antony and Cleopatra, Napoleon and Josephine, Lancelot and Guinevere, Paris and Helen of Troy. I think some of the best recent romances come from Pixar. Carl and Ellie from Up ought to be on any list. Oh, oh, Carl had a wife? That's like the opening to Nemo, right? Finding Nemo. A lot of kids don't know that Nemo's mom dies because you don't show them that part. You start afterwards. No? Morbid. You people are morbid. Wally and Eva... Mike Wazowski and Celia, there's a romance for the ages. Honorable mention to Woody and Bo Peep and Lightning McQueen and Sally. You see, they're really into romance in the Pixar universe. But what about Solomon and the Shulamite or Boaz and Ruth or Isaac and Rebecca? None of the lists had these or any other biblical romances. Hopefully you had one or two. We rarely think of romance when we read the Bible, even though there are many amazing love stories. Jacob and Rachel. Jacob was sent by his father Isaac to find a wife from a relative's family. He met Rachel at the well, and it was literally love at first sight for both of them. As recorded in Genesis 29, when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Laban agreed to their marriage if Jacob would work for him as a shepherd for seven years. Jacob agreed, and the seven years, quote, seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. At the end of the seven years, Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. To marry Rachel, Jacob would have to work an additional seven years, which he did gladly. It's more than the fact that there are great love stories like that in the Bible. The Bible is a great love story, and that's why For God So Loved the World is the most well-known of any verse in the Bible. God is incredibly romantic. In the Old Testament, God the Father speaks of the nation of Israel as his wife and of himself as her loving and faithful husband. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Jesus Christ, and we are told that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Commentators, largely male, are not so romantic. They overlook the romantic elements on the pages of the Bible. 
It's up to each of us, therefore, to be looking for romance as we read God's word. We need to put on our romance glasses to see what is going on in Exodus 32, at least the deeper part of it. If I can say this respectfully, God is jilted and then he acts hard to get, while Moses examples for us a passionate love for God that pursues his presence. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, are you passionate about pursuing God? And number two, are you proving the presence of God? Let's take a look at our passion first in verses 1 through 17. Now, the drama in this section is that God tells Moses he has decided to not accompany the Israelites to or into the promised land. He will instead send a mighty angel who will drive out their enemies, but he's not going anymore. The incident with the golden calf is what made the difference. The Israelites worshipped it instead of him, which is often described in the Bible as committing spiritual adultery. God wanted to accompany them. His desire was to dwell among them. He had previously said, this is from Exodus 25, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Then in chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. And so it's not going too far to say that God desired to dwell with them. For their part, the Israelites had quickly turned away from God to worship a golden calf as their new God. I don't think it's going too far to say that God was jilted by Israel. He was literally left at the altar. If you remember, Aaron uh, molded the golden calf, then he built an altar. They sacrificed to God on the altar and then immediately went into the worship of the golden calf involving a drunken orgy. And so they left God at the altar in a very classic sense. And so God said, I'm going to keep my promises to you, but I'm going to withdraw from you. Yet in verse 14 of chapter 33, the Lord will relent saying, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What happened in between to cause him to relent? Moses pursued him and he wouldn't take his absence for an answer. So let's look at it beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants I will give it. I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite. If you're reading Exodus as a history book, this wouldn't really be such a big deal. God was going to withdraw, but he would send a powerful representative and the results would be the same, conquest of the promised land. But you're not reading Exodus as a history book, not primarily. It is part of the story of the redemption of the human race. Some have accurately called the Bible the romance of redemption. From a romantic standpoint, God's refusal to accompany them to not dwell among them was devastating. It was paramount to a legal separation. Another way of approaching this is to see that God was offering the gift, but they would no longer enjoy him as the giver. It prompted one commentator to write this. This was a challenge to Moses and the nation as a whole. God told them that they could have the promised land, but he would not remain with them in a close personal way. If they were satisfied with that arrangement, it would prove they only loved God's blessings and not God himself. If they challenged God, 
pleading with him for his presence, not only his blessings, it would show a genuine heart for God himself. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. A land flowing with milk and honey is a way of announcing the fertility of the promised land. I learned something interesting about honey. According to a Jewish author, a Jewish source, and I quote, honey here is generally understood to be a reference to fruit nectar, specifically date honey, not bees honey. Aren't you glad you know that? Might win you a bet sometime. If you consider what had recently transpired, maybe this was a good idea. Israel had quickly sinned, bringing upon themselves the sword and a plague. This new arrangement would ensure that they were less likely to be consumed, but they would still arrive at their destination and claim their destiny. It's only a good idea if you're settling for the things of the world, if you're a person dominated by your own fleshly appetites. If you love God, this is simply awful. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, to be given every other blessing is of no value if God is not with you. What is the value of Canaan? What is the value of milk and honey? What is the value of having possessions if God was not with them? They saw that the realization of the presence of God, having this fellowship and company, was infinitely more important than everything else. And so verse 4 When the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Even if he didn't accompany them, God still might come up into their midst in one moment and consume them. They were thus instructed to take off all ornamentation as a sign of genuine repentance. Matthew Henry writes of this saying, God bade them lay aside their ornaments, and they did so, both to show in general their deep mourning, and in particular to take a holy revenge upon themselves for giving their earrings to make the golden calf. Those that would part with their ornaments for the maintenance of their sin could do no less than lay aside their ornaments in token of their sorrow and shame. For their sin. And so it all seems so desperate, so final. God was leaving them, but Moses wouldn't let him, not without pursuing him. And so in verse 7, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. Moses had been on Mount Sinai receiving plans for the tabernacle, a tabernacle within which God would dwell among his people. It had not been built yet. This is Moses' own tent. He has no instruction or command to do this. It is his own spontaneous response to the devastating news. Whenever I pass new construction, I'm curious as to what is being built. I love it when they put up a sign telling you it's the future home of the new Burger King in Fargo Plaza or some such place. Like we need more Burger Kings and McDonald's. Maybe we need more In-N-Out's, but... The other places, I don't know. Moses goes outside the camp, far from where Israel had sinned. Everyone, including God, must have been wondering what he was doing. He goes into camp, takes down his tent, starts walking. Should we follow him? What's going on? Then the sign went up, tabernacle of meeting. Moses put up his own tabernacle of meeting, letting God and everyone else know that he planned to wait there until God met with him. 
He was pursuing God, I would say, spontaneously and romantically. So verse 7, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Mind you, as I said, there had been no invitation to meet with God. But all those who sought the Lord, meaning those who desired his presence, the giver and not just his gifts, they pursued him along with Moses. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose and each man stood at the door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. Now we're not privy to how many days Moses went out to the tabernacle only to return to the camp without having met with God. But each time he did, those who sought the Lord either went with him or they stood at their own tent doors in solidarity with him. And so the entire encampment was busy pursuing God who said, I am not going with you anymore. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. One day it happened. God manifested himself to Moses. He talked with Moses. This would not have occurred if Moses had simply taken God at his word that he was withdrawing. He seemed to intuit that there was more going on in the heart of God. He seemed to understand that a jilted God wanted to be pursued. All the people saw the pillar of God standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. They broke into some kind of spontaneous praise. We've calculated before that there were several million Israelites encamped. This must have been some praise time. I like to think that someone started a spiritual song and that the rest joined in, all with the correct harmonies. Maybe they sung the song of Moses or the song of Miriam, two songs that we've encountered previous in Exodus, or maybe it was some kind of spontaneous thing, but what a beautiful time of praise. And so Moses says, you know, God says, I'm not going with you. Moses said, oh, yes, you are. He goes out and pitches his tent, and all the people get behind it, and God meets with them, and then they start to praise the Lord. This is a beautiful, beautiful reconciliation. Whatever it was like, it was an incredible offering rising like incense to God. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. This is important. Face-to-face doesn't mean God appeared in a body of some kind. We just saw that he manifested himself as a pillar of cloud. Face-to-face means something like in his presence. It means God was genuinely present, but it was in a form that was non-fatal to humans in the pillar of cloud. Once again, Joshua gets suddenly dropped into the story. Last time we were in the book of Exodus, we saw that Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai getting information from God. The people were down below. And we almost forgot that Joshua had gone halfway up with Moses and was just hanging out there. He didn't have privileged access to God. Uh, He didn't have any companionship with the people. He was just doing his duty as a servant. Moses said, wait here. And he waited for the entire 40 days. Now, all of a sudden, we see that he was accompanying Moses out to the tabernacle of meeting and that he was taking up residence in this makeshift tabernacle, that he hung out there the entire time on call, as it were, in case God showed up. We're not told why Joshua remained, so we shouldn't speculate, 
I will say that Joshua is who I would want to be in this story. Do you ever do that? I'm gonna recommend you, you do this. Read the Bible, read these stories, Old Testament or New, and then step back in your devotion and say, who am I in that story? Who am I? Am I the prodigal son? Am I the older son? Am I the father in that particular parable? And then regardless of who I am in that passage, who do I want to be? Who is God telling me I want to be in that passage? And then how do I make it there? How do I get there? How do I become? I certainly don't want to be the children of Israel, do you? Having an orgy around a golden calf. I don't want to be Aaron, Moses' brother, who waffles in a second. I probably don't want to be Moses, too much responsibility. But Joshua, man, that guy shines throughout his career. And so it's a, it's a good devotion. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and also you have found grace in my sight. This, and I want to say this respectfully too, this almost sounds like someone in a marriage saying, you said you loved me. And this is Moses being very, very, very bold. Notwithstanding Israel's sin, Moses reminds God of their personal intimacy. God had said some amazing things to Moses, that he knew him by name. Not just that he knew the name, but that he, he, he was intimately acquainted with Moses. And that Moses had found grace in God's sight. And so Moses now acts slighted. Without consulting him, God had decided to send an angel instead of going himself. Moses didn't even know if it was Michael or Gabriel or some other angel. The man God knew by name and who found grace in his sight had been kept completely in the dark about a major decision. This is like saying, how can you say you love me and make such a decision without telling me? Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Moses makes a plea. Since he had found grace in God's sight, he demanded God personally show him the way, not some subordinate. Moses' motives were not material. He didn't simply want to get safely to the promised land and receive his and Israel's inheritance. He wanted to find grace in God's sight. Now, wait, hadn't he already found grace? Well, he had, but he understood this to be a growing in grace. This is an Old Testament way of expressing that God begins a good work in you in your heart, and then he brings it to completion. And so Moses is saying, I want to continue in an intimate, personal relationship with you. And right now, God, you've acted unilaterally and not brought me in to this. Moses wanted God, not his gifts. And then he adds, consider that this nation is your people. In other words, it was God who had separated them from the Gentiles and who had led them out from slavery. Should he not complete what he had begun in them as well? And this is a great verse, verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God never changes his mind, but he can and does relent in order to act according to his nature. Last week, we talked briefly about the city of Nineveh and Jonah's message that in 40 days they would be destroyed. And then the people said, let's repent because God might relent of his judgment, which he did. This is a similar situation in that 
God said, I'm not gonna go with you. I'm withdrawing from you. And the people say, let's repent because God might relent and go with us after all. And that's exactly what happens. And so God doesn't change his mind. He only always acts according to his nature. And so if he says a city is condemned and they repent, he saves them. If he says he's going to withdraw from his people and they repent, then he goes with them. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture of our relationship with God. Now, verse 15. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Moses understood that everything is about God restoring the relationship with mankind that was lost in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't about land, not really. It was about love. God so loved the world of lost humans that right in the garden, he promised to send his son to resolve the issue of sin in order that God and mankind might once again dwell together. That's where the bigger story ends, does it not? In eternity, with us face-to-face with God, in perfect eternal bodies that cannot sin. Verse 17, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. I'll go with you. I'll go with them, says the Lord. He would continue to dwell among them. They would continue to fall short, to fail, to snatch uh, defeat from the hands of victory. But for now, those who sought the Lord, those who pursued him, would enjoy a spiritual rest in him. Uh, There's a passage of scripture addressed to us in which Jesus indicates that for our lapses in love for him, he may withdraw from us to a certain degree. It is his letter to the church in Ephesus in the book of the Revelation. He tells us it's possible for us to leave our first love for him. It's so serious that Jesus says if we continue in that state, he will remove our lampstand from its place. Now, he wasn't saying anything about individual salvation. He's addressing the church corporately. He doesn't say, he's not going to, uh, it doesn't cost us our salvation. The churches on the earth are lampstands. They're the only spiritual light in the darkness of a realm whose ruler is the God of this world, Satan. Jesus was warning that the church at Ephesus would cease to have a testimony about the Lord. They'd be going through the motions of being a church, but nothing would really be happening there, nothing spiritual. A couple of strung together quotes from A.W. Tozer might better bring out what I'm saying. Tozer says, We have been snared in the coils of spurious logic, which insists that if we have found God, we need no more seek God. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Paul pursued God, the great apostle Paul. It says in Philippians 3, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. I press on that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what's the takeaway from this? I think it's to realize that a big part of your relationship with God, he sees it as a romance, and to therefore ask yourself regularly, am I passionate in my pursuit of God? You might start by listing what it is you are passionate about, 
and see where Jesus is on that list. But I'm going to leave that with you. As I like to say recently, I am not the Holy Spirit in your life. Whatever I would list this morning are things that I'm certainly not doing because I want to look in, in the best light. But you do this as an exercise. If people you know, think of you, people think of Gene Pensiero, what would they think I am really passionate about? Coffee. But hopefully Jesus is more important to me than coffee. And so that's a real thing. I, you know, I'm getting ready. I was thinking the other day, and then I got hit with this. I was going to say, do a different coffee maker every morning because I have, I don't even know how many coffee makers I have. They're all inexpensive, nothing big. You know, I'm not wasting my money. Well, depends on who you talk to, but, <laughs> but seriously, uh, you know, it's not that you can't have other passions or other hobbies or doing it, but could you uh, just enter into this realm of the romantic pursuit of God and, and start looking for it in the scripture and, and ask yourself, am I passionate about my love for the Lord in that kind of a sense? Secondly, are you proving the presence of God? Beginning in verse 18. In Guardians of the Galaxy, volume two, Rocket gives Yondu a space suit and a jet pack. He only has one of each. Yondu uses the suit to save Quill as they launch into the fatal environment of space, with no suit on, Yandu dies of exposure. That's a terrific uh, point in the movie. But you've seen space movies like that where all of a sudden the helmet gets a crack in it and their brains get sucked out and things like that. The idea is that certain environments require specialized clothing. Heaven is one such place. It requires a glorified human body so that your brain doesn't get sucked out of your mask. I made that part up. The presence of God is such a place also, and that is the immediate full presence of God in all his glory. Without some protection from the Lord, a person would be consumed by the holiness of God. God had appeared to Moses in a bush that was burning. He had appeared as a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. These manifestations left Moses wanting more. And so in verse 18, he said, please show me your glory. Moses knew that man was created in the image of God. He knew that Adam and Eve met with God in the Garden of Eden. He wanted to see God the way they did, not just as a bush or as a pillar. And then he said, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God was going to manifest himself in a physical way, that's true, but the greater revelation was in the things he would proclaim. Seeing God's glory involved God making a proclamation of his name, meaning his character, and the particular proclamation was about him being gracious and compassionate. Now, this is insightful for at least two reasons. First, his proclamations reveal his glory. That's what he's saying. I'm going to show you my glory by proclaiming my name that I am gracious and compassionate. So his proclamations reveal his glory. We could say that God's word, the Bible, reveals his glory. We don't need the Lord to manifest himself in some appearance. We don't need miracles, although we believe he can and does still perform them. We only need to proclaim his word through lives lived for him and by sharing the word itself in all its counsel. Let the word proclaim the glory of God. Second, he desires to show this glory, to show himself to all of Adam's descendants. When God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, there's no hint of him limiting those traits to a few chosen people. Quite the opposite, he's able to look upon the world of men, and even though they are all born in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, condemned, he has chosen to offer salvation by grace as a free gift to whosoever, seeing he is actively compassionate. In other words, God's saying, hey, I'm so holy, you can't even stand in my presence, but I can still offer myself to a lost humanity. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, no man shall see me and live. And many times in the Old Testament that God appears in human form, we call these either theophanies or Christophanies. They are pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus, not of God the Father. In our current state, we cannot be in the full presence of God. His holiness, as I said, would incinerate us in our current human bodies. We're not fit for that environment. We need and we will receive resurrection bodies which will be fit for eternity. And so that's why when I tell you, our, when you have our prophecy updates, we talk about the resurrection and the rapture of the church. Jesus is going to return and resurrect the dead in Christ. He explained, Paul explains resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 as a seed going into the ground. Seed goes into the ground and something magnificent comes up. Some of you can recognize seeds, certain seeds, I can't. Everything looks the same to me. But whatever comes up has a connection to the seed, but, but it doesn't look like it at all. And so the resurrection of the dead, as I understand it, as I understand what the Bible teaches, whether you're buried or cremated or blown to smithereens, uh, your body is going to give way to a glorified physical body that's going to be reunited with your spirit when Jesus comes. And at that kind of same moment, briefly after that, in an infinitesimal period of time, those who are alive and remain will be raptured. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. We will be translated into our glorified physical bodies, and all of us will be caught up to heaven to be with the Lord in bodies that are fit for heaven, that will not be incinerated, that will not wear down, uh, that cannot sin. And, and so that is what's going to happen. If Moses, though, was to see God, he would need protection. Verse 21, and the Lord said, here's a place by me. Stand on the rock, so it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what did Moses see? Well, it's complicated. Just when you think he saw some sort of human-like figure... A scholar points out that the word for back, which is what he was going to see primarily, is never used of physical anatomy for man or beast. It's not an anatomical word. Some scholars solved this by saying it was a theophany, that it was Jesus before he was the God-man. But I find a problem with that. How, how is it that he put him in the cleft of the rock and covered him the whole time with his hand. Was Jesus 30 feet tall? Did he manifest himself as a huge Jesus? The Argentina Jesus, you know, that's on, the, on that mountain or what? I mean, so there's problems. And, and all I'm saying is that in the end, we're not given enough information here to say exactly what Moses saw. It was something more than the burning bush, more than a pillar of fire or a cloud, but it was something less than the full revealed glory of God. 
The word for back can be translated after or afterwards. And so God is saying, I'm going to pass by you and you will see something afterwards. If we assume this appearance included brightness, because later on we'll see when Moses met with God, he came back glowing. And so there's kind of an afterglow. Those are uh, uh, acceptable uh, interpretations as well, translations rather, the after effects or the afterglow. Uh, we can reduce this to a devotional insight. I ask the question, are you proving the presence of God? One of the definitions of the word prove is to give a demonstration by your actions. So God sets Moses on a rock that is near to him, and he tells him to stand there and proclaims his glory, leaving Moses in some kind of an afterglow. Your rock is Jesus Christ, and you're told to take your stand upon him. For example, in Ephesians 6, we're told to stand in the armor of God. So we're standing on the rock, Jesus Christ. Whatever our circumstances, whether they be blessings or buffetings, you have the proclamation of his glory in his word to keep you. You know, say, Lord, show, you, show yourself in this situation, and God oftentimes will direct you to his word where he's spoken to your situation, and it reveals his glory and gives you the courage and the strength that you need. And you can prove the presence of God to those looking on by trusting in those proclamations, thereby revealing him. Many of you have had the situation in time of suffering where your friends have said, I don't know how you do it. How can you keep going each day? It's the glory of God revealed to you in Jesus Christ in the word of God by uh, just standing on the rock. As marvelous as this experience was for Moses, it still cannot compare to the revelation of God given to us in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so pursue God, prove his presence, we are a part of the greatest romance in history, and it's fact, not fiction. 